This is the Prevention Podcast with former intelligence officer and author Dan Verton, sponsored by LiveSafe, the leading risk intelligence communications platform that surfaces early warning insights and prevents serious safety and security incidents to mitigate operational risks, reduce financial losses, and make places safer for people to work, learn, and live. We're expecting positive tests. I think anybody uh, will be uh, when you come into a uh, an environment uh, like a university campus where everybody there's a high population density. Yes, we're going to get positive cases, but what are the ways we can minimize uh, the risk to the greater campus community? And we've chosen to go with a less dense academic and less dense living environment. Welcome to the Prevention Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Dan Verton. The COVID-19 global pandemic has altered every facet of American life. The most mundane of daily tasks, like going to the grocery store, now pose significant health risks if not conducted with extreme care. Millions of workers remain unemployed or face the reality of working from home for the foreseeable future. Large gatherings like Big Ten sporting events remain out of the question or will soon return to stadiums with few or no fans. Yet two-thirds of colleges and universities, some with tens of thousands of students, are confident that they can open their campuses safely in the fall. The question is, how? Well, I recently spoke with Eric Plummer, the Associate Vice President for Public Safety and the Chief of Police at the University of North Dakota, for our new white paper, Calculated Risk, Returning to Campus in the Age of COVID-19. You can download a free copy of that new white paper on LiveSafe's website, livesafemobile.com. Plummer heads up the university's pandemic planning and response team, which has been meeting daily for months now. Here's that interview. Chief, so UND will be returning to campus in August. You've got about 15,000 students, I believe, 2,400-plus staff members and your plan really emphasizes being what you call COVID resilient. What does that mean exactly? So one of the things that we're looking at is uh, taking not only the physical distancing requirements or recommendations from the CDC, so that, you know, uh, lower density uh, classroom environment, spacing everyone out, putting in plexiglass barriers uh, for the faculty member to ensure that they are comfortable um, making masks mandatory within the classroom environment are where you cannot have uh, physical distancing standards maintained. Um, in the living environment, we're going with low density housing. So uh, one person per room. Uh, and Typically, in a suite environment, there would normally be four people in there, so it'd be four people to that bathroom. We're going with the two people, two people uh, sharing a bathroom. Uh, enhanced cleaning uh, frequency uh, with faculty, or I'm sorry, with our facilities personnel. Um, also, in the classroom environment, we are having um, disinfection stations uh, located at the front of the door. That will be um, disinfection wipes that the students can take to wipe down their area. Uh, masks, if they forget their masks or if something happens and their masks 
is broken or unusable, uh, they'll have masks available for them there. Um, also, um, hand sanitizing stations in the classrooms, but also at all of the entrances uh, to the buildings. Uh, our buildings entrances and exits are changing. So there's one uh, way to get into the building and then multiple ways to exit the buildings. We've spaced out our classroom start times uh, so that there's an extra five minutes uh, built in between classes. Um, also, if we have students that are in a vulnerable population or maybe more susceptible uh, because they are higher risk because of pre-existing conditions, uh, they have the option of taking that class in a virtual environment. Same with our faculty. If our faculty members are at an increased risk and we can't pro provide a mitigation for that, they have the option of teaching their classes in the virtual format and having assistants uh, that are available uh, to assist the class when needed. Uh, same thing with our laboratory spaces. Uh, our laboratories are uh, lower density, uh, but we've increased the technology uh, and the technical capabilities of our laboratory environments. Um, same thing with dining, lower density dining, grab and go options available, uh, increased hand sanitizing and things of that nature um, in those types of environments. Um, most meetings, uh, at least when we start um, the school year, uh, are gonna be in a virtual format, uh, especially any meeting or event over 50 people in attendance will be required to go online. Uh, to host those. Uh, anything less than that has to be pre-approved. Um, and then they are provided a, a location that they're able to meet uh, physical distancing standards in that type of environment. Um, along with all that physical distancing um, we're putting in place, we're also uh, developing a testing protocol uh, for campus. So we're looking at having our own testing machine on campus to partner with the state Department of Health, as well as our local uh, Department of Health uh, to run testing in three different categories. So we have our higher probability or higher risk uh, community members, our medium risk or medium probability, and then our low risk, low probability uh, sections. And then the frequency we're building out right now in the higher risk, we're looking at testing every one to two weeks, medium risk every two to four weeks, and then our lower risk at least monthly or upon request. Uh, so we're still trying to develop that protocol um, as well. Uh, working with our local public health is where we had our own um, student health group uh, trained in a contact tracing. So uh, CDC recommends 30 contact tracers per, per 100,000 population. So that roughly puts us at about um, seven to eight required. So we made sure we have appropriate staffing uh, that if we do have a positive uh, case on campus or within the community, but it's related to a campus student faculty or staff, 
that our contact tracing team has utilized. So that gives us easier access to see uh, where on campus that person may have been, uh, people that may be affected. Um, now with that as well, we have the ability to uh, add isolation and quarantine locations um, on campus. Um, so we know that we should be looking at a minimum of 54 locations um, or 54 rooms where we could provide quarantine space for uh, close contacts of known positive cases or uh, for people that have been uh, or have tested positive, we're providing an isolation location for them as well. And then that, again, takes care of their feeding, uh, ma making sure that they have access virtually to their classroom environment and then getting anything else that we may need or they may need um, to get through the uh, isolation and our quarantine uh, time frame. Again, all that together, uh, put together, we're hoping um, creates a, a way that we can uh, provide the mitigation, but once identification occurs, we can move them into an appropriate space uh, to keep um, the spread of risk low uh, on our campus community. We're expecting positive tests. I think anybody uh, will be uh, when you come into a uh, an environment uh, like a university campus where everybody there's a high population density. You know, we look at yes, we're going to get positive cases, but what are the ways we can minimize uh, the risk to the greater campus community? And we've chosen to go with a less dense academic and less dense living environment to aid in that. Um, and luckily for us, over the past three years, we really revamped our continuity of operation planning uh, to where each division uh, completed their continuity plan, each department re responsible for one of their critical functions, uh, ended up developing that plan. Uh, and developing their own plan. So when we did have to flip the switch uh, in March to move to a remote learning and working environment, it was relatively easy for us to do. What will the role of campus police be in this strategy, given that there are many who doubt the ability of 18 to 22-year-old college students to maintain the type of personal discipline that will be needed to prevent a surge in COVID-19 cases? Yep, so we have talked through that. We actually had to quarantine a few students in the spring semester based on uh, close contact or them being designated as close contacts. Um, in the fall semester, what we are planning on doing is running um, any enforcement through our Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities, and that will be through the Dean of Students Office. Um, any quarantine uh, violations or isolation violations will be handled with a partnership with our local health department, who actually has the ability to get court orders in the uh, case that they have non-compliance. Uh, and again, that depends uh, on what our disease prevalence is uh, within the local community. We're not planning on using the law enforcement to enforce it. 
Now, you're part of the pandemic planning and response team at UND, and your first objective seems to be testing. You've got about, like I said, 16,000 people on campus. How many tests will you need, and what's the plan for testing and contact tracing? I mean, will you be ready and capable of doing the amount of testing you need by August? We think we will be. Uh, We've uh, worked with the local health department. We've talked with uh, some companies, uh, and they said in August, uh, when we are wanting everything in place by August 1st, that they would be at a point in their supply chain that they would be able to meet our demand here. Now, in addition to the COVID-19 challenge, you'll be welcoming students back during a time of great social upheaval around the country. Young people obviously have been at the predominant force behind these protest movements around the country in support of racial justice, social justice movements. Are you prepared to deal with this on top of all of the COVID-19 concerns? And do you have a plan to address any trust gaps that might exist now between your campus police force and the community? Yep. So we've actually worked really well with our community, especially when it comes to protests and demonstrations. Um, one of the things that we do is we have a pretty well-developed um, uh, demonstrations, protests, large event gatherings policy, uh, which actually had been green lighted by fire. Um, And what that does is anyone that wants to host a protest or demonstration on campus actually goes through the events process, um, and we work with them on making it uh, a safe environment for all, especially when you're looking at coming into COVID-19. What does that look like? You don't want a local disease spread. You want to make sure people have access to the right to voice their First Amendment uh, protections. However, we need to make sure that they're, uh, because of the public health emergency, that they're doing it in a safe and effective manner. And we've always been able to work with our community to provide masks, to provide, um, you know, access to hand sanitizers and, you know, provide access to, hey, this is the location. This is what we are requesting people, you know, adhere to the physical distancing. Now, are you going to get 100% compliance? No, but you want to make sure that people feel heard and that they, you at least have provided them a safe environment. Now, if they choose uh, not uh, to maintain physical distancing and things of that nature, that's a conversation you can have later. Uh, But typically we work through that uh, with the event organizers. We've had uh, a demonstration uh, in the la- within the last two weeks. We had an officer that was killed in the line of duty uh, somewhat close to campus. They actually hosted the funeral, which had over 3,000 people uh, at one of the facilities that is not owned by the campus, but it's on campus. Uh, so, you know, how were we going to mitigate uh, the potential of having over 3,000 people how do we keep them safe by physical distancing, providing masks, hand sanitizers? Um, and we were able to do that. And we were able to do it rather successfully. So, again, I think there are mitigations that you can offer that you can put in place. Uh, now, if people tend not to uh, abide by it, then, again, it comes into the is it uh, if they are a student, is it a violation of the 
uh, code of conduct? Do you handle them through um, Office of Student Rights and Responsibility? If it's a faculty member or staff member, there are HR processes involved at that point. And what we've been doing right now is just building out what those um, procedures are, how we are going to handle violations, um, and how we are going to educate our community in an effort to make sure that uh, we don't have uh, spikes in cases locally. But if we do, uh, we have the resources in place to mitigate it. So you probably hear the term community-oriented policing a lot. Uh, we actually go by a term uh, partnership policing. So we police through practical partnerships. So what that is, is instead of us being basically the social workers and people calling us with their problems and expecting us to address them all the time, we actually have, um, uh, we actually are proactive in nature. We host courses on campus. We actually host things uh, with our community where law enforcement and the community interact in a positive manner. So when officers drive around, people know who they are. They're very visible. Uh, most people are on first name basis with our department. So it's easy when you do have to go in um, and uh, enforce something. Usually there's already that relationship built where an officer can interact with somebody and they de-escalate it rather quickly because of that one-on-one -on -one, uh, personal knowledge between both parties. Um, most of our, or all of our officers have been through mental health first aid training. A lot of our officers are uh, trained in enhanced crisis intervention techniques. So again, they have that de-escalation training uh, from day one. Uh, that way we don't put ourselves in a situation where we are uh, using excessive force in a situation that really did not need uh, to have that level of force exerted. Our guest has been Eric Plummer, the Associate Vice President for Public Safety and the Chief of Police at the University of North Dakota. Chief, thanks very much for being on the Prevention Podcast. Not a problem. You take care. The Prevention Podcast airs every other Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. Available wherever you get your podcasts. You can sign up for our newsletter at livesafemobile.com and follow us on Twitter at LiveSafe.